Film reviews as usual on a Thursday evening. Stories of grief, hope and faith for you this evening and indeed some horror. In all of us, stranger, loneliness and love abound as a man grapples with childhood tragedy. And of course, the film has a lot of Irish interest since it stars two of our finest, Andrew Scott and Paul Meskell, whom you heard on last night's programme, along with the filmmaker Andrew Haig. The Colour Purple, Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Alice Walker, was first adapted for the screen uh, uh, in 1985 by Steven Spielberg. But in this latest version, we have a musical retelling of the story of Celia, a young black girl in early 20th century uh, Georgia. Padre Pio is the latest film from controversial director Abel Ferrara. It explores the life of the Italian with Sheila Buff in the title role. And finally, in Baghead, we meet a young woman who inherits an old pub with a surprise resident in the basement, a 400-year-old she-devil called Baghead. There's a mix for you. Joining me in studio this evening, Tara Brady and, and Chris Wasser and... There's only one to start with, really, isn't there? Um, I think everybody in Ireland is looking forward to to see All of Us Strangers with Andrew Scott and Paul Meskell, directed by Andrew Haig. Um, the, the basic setup here, and it's quite a clever setup, really. It comes from a novel, uh, uh, Tara. Yeah, it comes from a novel and it's actually already been made into a very good Japanese film that sort of came and went mm. without anyone noticing. So hopefully people might actually go and dig the dig it out and have a look at it because it, it is um, a, a, extremely good. Um, it's 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 a very nice idea. And like at, at its core, it's a very simple idea. So like we have this man, he's a lonely man, he's a writer. So by definition, he, he's quite lonely and he's living in this kind of solitary apartment block. He only sees one other person um, come and go um, so so this is Andrew Scott's character Adam. The Lonely Man is Andrew Scott the, the fellow who comes and goes is Paul Meskell Yeah, yeah. and, and he's, he's, he's but a sort of glint or, or kind of gleam in the in the kind of margins but but the core of the idea is that he's going through old things and you know there's you know there's obviously kind of little Proustian rush going on and he returns to his hometown and when he returns to his hometown he finds his mum and dad as they were before they died and they had died many decades previously. But he was just 12 years old in fact. So um, so he's having conversations with them um, as they were mm. when they were alive and, and it's and it's incredibly meaningful because um, he um, Adam is gay and a, a huge part of the thing is the way that, that gay men, some gay men particularly of that age who grew up with AIDS in the background as a kind of a death sentence and all those terrible adverts and all the scaremongering um, that, and you know and then the sort of gay culture that's there on TV, like uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood and stuff. Mm. And he, the, there's a constant kind of 80s uh, music strand uh, running through it. But but a lot of it is about how gay culture has left some of those men behind, you know, as it's become completely, as it's become increasingly corporatized. And so there's that key idea. But there's also that lovely idea of like, of going at, at a certain point in your life when you have to go through a loved one's like effects. Um, like after they've gone yeah. and, and so both of those things are, are in the story and it feels like a really personal story and indeed it was a very personal story because he actually the director went back to his own hometown to shoot it in back, and, back to his own actual home yeah. went up and knocked on the door as he told me and also while he didn't lose parents in, in this way as Andrew Higg told me last night his father as he was shooting that film Andrew Higg's father uh, uh, had Parkin or had Alzheimer's so you know a kind of dementia was setting in there as well which is very interesting in a film that is all about memory mm-hmm. that that should be happening in, in his personal life as well but the dynamic the, the, the dynamic between the two gay men is very interesting here as well Chris in yep. that the Paul Meskell character is a contemporary you know he's he's of the 2020s a very different climate in terms of a gay person he is whereas yeah. Andrew Scott's is a much older coming out of the period that Tara has mentioned the AIDS crisis yeah and Adam Andrew Scott's character does you know they, he does get to say that for years he was quite just wary of, of meeting people or maybe even falling in love or just you know having sex with another man because of mm. these ads that are mentioned that, that might have scared him um, but uh, Harry Paul Meskell's character is a bit more forthright and when we first meet him he is quite tipsy he does see well, Adam well, let's, let's listen let's listen to him actually as, as we first meet him so they've seen each other in the distance you know in this kind of uh, practically empty apartment block and Paul Meskell's Harry comes up to uh, Andrew Scott Adam's door drink this Japanese 
It's meant to be the best in the world, but I, I couldn't tell you why, so... No, thanks. Okay, um... Okay, how about I come in anyway? If not for a drink, then... for whatever else you might want. Um, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Do I scare you? No. We don't have to do anything if I'm not your type. There's vampires at my door. Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott there in a scene from quite early on in, in All of Us Strangers. And I, I cut you off as you were in, in mid-flight there, Chris. I mean, it is, there's such an incredible dynamic, tender dynamic yeah. that builds, and, and very intimate dynamic that builds between the two men. Yeah, and I think it's it's uh, it's interesting that most most of the focus has been on Andrew Scott's character and Andrew Scott's performance, and he is the lead here and he is extraordinary, but Harry is a character in his own right who, you know, is quite lonely too and has his own uh, tragic background. He kind of hints that, you know, his family won't really talk to him. Maybe, you know, they kind of disowned him when he came out. Um, and we get to, and we learn through the time that, that Harry and, and, and Adam spend together and they do spend an awful lot of time mm. in his apartment or you know uh, Harry brings uh, brings Adam out I mean you heard them there you heard Adam there he is instantly smitten but he's afraid to admit it yeah. and it takes another few days and another few trips back home and those kind of interactions that he has with his ghost mom and his ghost dad which kind of sounds strange that lights a fire inside of him and he he pursues a romantic relationship yeah. he decides to, to be a bit more confident around Harry and the, the, but the and that dynamic is extraordinary both mm-hmm. actors phenomenal performances both of them and then you have the parental Thing. You know, when when you hear that Claire Foy and Jamie Bell are play, are playing Andrew Scott's parents, you go, huh? But you, you just yeah. you get it, you cop it very quickly. You understand it. Um, I have to say that, like you know, when, like as, as as good as Paul Mascal is, and some of my favorite scenes are, are with Jamie Bell and yeah. Claire Foy. Yeah. I I yeah. just think they're the strongest scenes in the movie because I think they're scenes that, like in one way or another, people have played out in their head with you know with with someone who's gone and like imagined conversations. And I think that I think that's going to have a huge amount of emotional resonance with with an awful lot of people yeah. coming from all kinds of di- of different backgrounds. But I thought like and but what's really interesting as well about Jamie Ballantyre so they're very different performances I love like the kind of like kind of gruffness that Jamie Bell has and it's you know like kind of matter of factness and, and I'm, I'm real down to earth kind of dad and and but we're and but Claire Foy like it is very inquiring and you know like she she's a, she's a nosy mother and like <laughs> she's she's not even real but she's she's incredibly yeah, nosy and yeah. she she wants to know everything that's going on and she's worried and she projects all her kind of fears onto him and I, I think they're just like really brilliantly written scenes but they're also incredibly well performed yeah I agree I think that Jamie Bell is an actor who sometimes doesn't get the credit he deserves and he's very good here as a regretful father who didn't get to say the things that he wanted to say when his son was you know when his son was just a boy mm. and I think a lot of the focus on this film has been on the love story between Paul Mescal yeah. and Andrew Scott and they are terrific together but for me this is a story about familial love as well and while Andrew Scott is trying to figure out what he thinks of the, the feelings that he has for Harry he's also trying to understand what it means to love his own family and to be loved by them and they have a very complicated relationship and for me like Tara that was the selling point of this film the whole I suppose the real star of the film one would have to say is Andrew Haig yeah, yeah, it, no, yeah. Direct, and it's, writer it, and director. It, it is very much a piece where you can see it's someone of a certain age who's gone and who's really thought these things mm. through. He's thought about things deeply. I mean, it's a very circumspect, like a circumspect film, and it's a very circumspect film about something that's quite hard to dramatize, like, yeah. uh, like loneliness and, and interiority and and the business of kind of sitting there on your own and being a writer, which you know is you know it's it's yeah. not the most fun or like dynamic <laughs> thing to try and bring to a movie, but, and yet he's made this incredibly intriguing mysterious enigmatic film out and of I don't know about either of you two but <laughs> certainly the screening I was at several people needed including myself needed to be wiped and mopped up after oh, off yeah. the ground after yeah. oh, incredibly it, moving it's devastating at times yeah it's quite tender uh, Scott's performance uh, there's nothing showy about it it is quite subtle mm. but it just it gets it gets under your skin it's very very effective I think Andrew Haig is the star here because 
it's a ghost story and if you tell a person that this is a ghost story they might not want to see it but it, it, a fantasy like this I think works because at yeah. its core it's a compelling human drama and it's populated by real people who have real things yeah. to say who have real feelings and so you just kind of settle into the fact that he's speaking to his dead parents there's no it doesn't yeah. over explain itself no, yeah. and it, that's what makes it so effective and it is that quartet of actors at the, at the very heart of it that are, yeah. that are, that are important uh, just one thing on the, the Paul Meskel Andrew Scott dynamic I'm delighted that Paul Maskell has the, the BAFTA nomination and hope that it becomes an award. I, I, astonished that Andrew Scott was not equally nominated. Is, is Was he left out of it? I th- well, I think that, I mean, it was a very, it was a fiercely competitive yeah. field this year. I Ordinarily, we always have conversations about which actresses are getting left off the bill because they tend to be kind mm. of, meteor, a lot of the time they tend to be meteor roles. But mm. no, this year it's like actors. I mean, look at Barry, like look at, there's so many Barry people Jordan, who yeah, I yeah. think in another year would have made it in and just they didn't. Yeah, yeah, well. That says a lot. That says a lot about the state of of filmmaking. And I think, as 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 I said, what's going on in Irish acting is something amazing. Certainly, stars from both of you. Let's start with you, Chris. Yeah. For uh, for um, all of us strangers, I thought it was extraordinary. Uh, it moved me in ways that I didn't expect it to. Uh, lovely romance between Paul Mescal and, and Andrew Scott, and just a lovely family drama between the, the yeah. Jamie Bell and, and Claire Foy and Adam. Um, I'm going to go with the full five. Full five. What are you saying, Tara? Oh, high four. Very, very good. Very, very high four and the full five, respectively, for all of us strangers. Let's move on to The Colour Purple. Alice Walker's 1983 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Colour Purple. Um, Whoopi Goldberg, famously, in the, the 1985 adaptation. It was 1983. It was 1985 in the film. Beg your pardon. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a musical version of The Colour Purple. The Colour Purple <laughs> is not a... It's not a jazz hands type of story, Tara. No, it's not. But like, you know, we, we, we know that there's more unlikely things that have been made into musicals and mm. have been made into very um, good musicals. I think this suffers a lot from, uh, like, and there's been a lot of conversation around this, around both Wonka and Mean Girls um, for, for two reasons. Um, but all, both of those films and Colour Purple um, put out trailers and advertising and marketing materials that disguise the fact they were musicals. And, and then the second problem is none of them really have big show-stopping tunes. Um, There's beautiful production here, there's beautiful arrangements, but I think it's very, very telling that the best song in the film is Miss Seeley's Blues Sister, which is a song that they've inherited from the Spielberg film. It's the only one that you could possibly hum afterwards. Everything else, like, you know, great choreography, this looks amazing, but there's nothing there that you could actually sing afterwards. There's just nothing that sticks in your head. And the other issue with it is, is that this feels like a remake of the Spielberg film that keeps pausing for songs. So there's a narrative mm, momentum that, that is really, really lacking in the film. And I thought it was it's really telling. There's that terrific scene in the Spielberg film where she's sh- um, where Celie is shaving Mr. And she's realised the extent of like all the kind of bad things he's done to her. And you're like going, oh, is she going to cut his neck? Is she going to like, is she actually going to kill yeah. him? And like, and, and it mounts and it builds and it has this like huge amount of like Hitchcocky intention you're cutting away and you're cutting and um, and they have they have the same scene here and it's just alright that's over now yeah. and, and it just it just doesn't have yeah. but but that's because they're truncating around the songs and it just it no there's no momentum to it at all The director here Blitz Bazuli is uh, well known for working on pop videos Beyonce and people like that um, does that add anything to the music sequences or does it just you know, amplify them in a way that possibly oh, it's doesn't occasionally, suit the story. It's occasionally spectacular to look mm. at, but it looks like a filmed Broadway play. It's not quite of they're very different things, but it's not quite as inventive as Mean Girls. You know, the transition mm. from film to Broadway and back again. Um, I think the the thing that just bothers me is I don't know who watched or read the Alice Walker novel, watched the Spielberg film, and said, "You know what will make this better? Song and dance." I, given yeah. the subject matter yeah. here, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's such a good talk, idea. Because we're talking about because huge maltreatment of yeah, this black woman. That's what the story that's at the heart of it. Yeah, we're talking about scenes where 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 uh, these poor women are being raped, uh, they're being abused by, by by their husbands at home. Very serious themes and topics. And then to throw song and dance routines in on mm. top of that is to trivialise and disnify the whole thing. And that just not that doesn't sit right with me at all. All right, you, you, let's have a listen to a bit of the music. You mentioned Tara that you reckon Miss Seeley's blue is about blues rather is about the most memorable tune within it. Let's have a listen to that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's, it is it. That's uh, Miss Cities Blues from the Colour Purple, the new musical version. And it, as you say, Tara, it's taken directly and someone's mm-hmm. from the Spielberg movie. And Miss Cities is a performer, and that adds that adds maybe why that song is so so memorable. What about the performances outside of that? Uh, Taraji P Henson, Fantasia Barino plays the Whoopi Goldberg character, and Daniela Brooks. A lot of people talking about her in particular. I think Chris. Yeah, she's brilliant. Anytime she comes, she plays Sophia, who marries uh, Mr. Son. Harpo um, and she lets Harpo know from the outset that she will not be treated the same way that Mr. Treats uh, mm. Seely. and every time she comes into focus the film around her lights up and that's the thing it sounds as though I uh, just from, from from the description I gave you there that I didn't like this film I loved the performances in it I thought Taraji P. Henson in particular was just tremendous and I think the characters here they're working with characters that have just been chipped down and just softened and just it, it, they're, they're caricatures yeah. at this stage uh, but the but the actors are just they're, they're, they go at it they, they bring them to life they're just it's, there's fireworks everywhere and I think they're just overcompensating basically for what's on the page and that's fine because they actually do leave a mark so the performances you know uh, the, the dramatic performances are great it's just the songs are not Stars from you, Chris. I think we'll go with three, three out of five. I'm looking forward to seeing what Blitz uh, Bazawili does next. And I'd actually like to see more of Fantasia Barino as an actor because playing the role of Celia here, this is her feature, uh, her feature yeah, film. This, the this is the, the Whoopi Goldberg with the character yes, for those yeah, who know yeah. the original film. And she is quite effective here. Yeah. Uh, from you, Tara, overall, oh, what do you say? Oh, yeah, saying? love for Coleman Domingo as well, who yeah. just got an Academy he plays Award. The, the bad Mister, guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's Mister. A, no, a really, really great performance because he has the he has a charisma as well yeah. as being a bad guy. Um, but yeah, three for me. I mean, it, it, it looks lovely. It just, yeah, it, it, but a, a bit of a tune would have been nice. <laughs> Go back to the 1985 movie or the 1983 novel, perhaps is the advice on that one. Moving on to film number three this evening, Patrick Pio, <laughs> Sheila Buff, playing the tortured Italian saint. Um, again, there are, there are themes and you think, what are we going to do with this particular story? What story are they telling of Padre Pio, given that we're talking about Abel Ferrari? Well, who is a quite a controversial filmmaker, Chris. Well, it's Padre Pio's name above the door, but he's hardly in his own film. Um, so Abel Ferrara does give us a little bit of Pio, um, Padre Pio coming to uh, the Italian town of San Giovanni mm. Rotunda in 1918. He had spent some time with his family. He is, uh, his health is not in the best shape. Uh, physically, he's not in the best shape. Mentally, he's not in the best shape. Um, he started to just feel, he's, he's, it's almost as if he started to reject his soul, his mind, his body, um, and his fellow priests in this in this convent, they are quite worried about him he's actually having visions of, mm. of of the devil taunting him at night and and he can't sleep but these are all just snippets that appear throughout this 90 100 minute, minute picture what 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 Abel Ferreira is actually focusing on is the uh, soldiers who are returning to the town uh, of San Giovanni Rotonda from World War One and you know their their bodies are battered uh, their souls are bruised um, and they're they're expected to just go back to work and work these long hours on the land under this tyrannical landowner and eventually a few of them who fought in the war just say enough is enough they decide to form a socialist party and of course that does not go down well uh, with the more powerful people in the town so that's the story that Abel Ferreira is focusing on on and every now and then Padre Pio comes into it and how controversial is it because Abel Ferreira wouldn't be without without controversy really would he Tara? Well what, what, what he's doing like what he does really well is those kind of like suffering um, like spiritual redemption tales and he does those with mm. like really bad guys like like Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant and, and films like that so when he has an actual spiritual subject and it's Sheila Buff as well and mm. and part of the film which is really interesting is that it incorporates words that could have come from his apolo- his public apology um, to some of his former girlfriends who who publicly complained about Sheila him Sheila Buff's character yes it's, it, it actually incorporates some of that language 
language into the performance so you get a mm. real sense of yeah. like this like it's absolutely he absolutely blazing up the screen it's a really intense so he's using LaBeouf is using words from controversies in his own personal life, life yes. as the character of Padre Pio yeah that, no that is definitely there but there, there there is it is sort of a game of two halves and maybe three there's a, there's a there's a slight problem with the fact that I think financing fell through in the middle of the film so he's had to ask Italian actors to to speak parts do do roles in English and they can just about speak English and acting in English is not the same as speaking in English so it gives a really kind of amateur effect to some of the political stuff especially yeah. you know it's kind of polemical dialogue in the first place but it is a nice idea it's a good idea the idea of people coming back from the front of feudal Italy and going no we've, we've been exposed yeah. to other yeah. ideas it's also a good idea to have this idea of like this kind of internal struggle and right. and and there's also a good idea that of linking what goes on in Padre Pio's body to to what's going on in in the populace, the populace, but yeah, it doesn't no, quite no, come together. Like... But you know, it's not bereft of things to say. Right here's um, Sheila Buff then as Padre Pio, and in this he's he's talking to a character called Tallman. Mm-hmm. Are they all just referred to in that fashion? It, this know? is a C.R. Gento, who is another person who's quite controversial. <laughs> okay. Quite a tense scene, and if uh, Padre Pio or Sheila Buff as Padre Pio was very keen that um, Tallman says the right thing. God can help you. Go to God. I think God doesn't exist. Why? If you continue behaving the way you're behaving, you're going to hell. You understand that? You understand that? I don't know if there is hell. You don't know if there's hell? No. You will when you get there. Get up and get out. Get out. Get out. I have a question for you. Say Christ is Lord. Say Christ is Lord. Say it. You say Christ is Lord. Get out. Get out. There you go. That's uh, Sheila Buff as Padre Pio, Asia Argento as tall man in a scene from Padre Pio. And, you know, if if they were doing dodgy Italian accents, I'd probably <laughs> be giving out about that. But he, I mean, he's a, he's definitely a Padre. Um, I said Padre Pio in that scene. Yeah. The accents, is, is it a problem or are we better off with that than fake Italian accents? Uh, probably. I, no one wants a fake a cartoon Italian accent, but yeah. I could have done without a California Padre Pio. And I, I started to think there maybe I was being too... Uh, after I watched this film, I, I, I really I, I disliked it a lot and I thought maybe I was being a bit too harsh on it. And just hearing that clip, I'm thinking, um, no, not at all. The film's a mess. I do believe there might have been some good intention here at the start, some good ideas. Um, but something's gone terribly wrong, and obviously it's, it's the fact that they ran ran out of uh, ran out of money. money. I know Sheila Buff uh, improvised an awful lot of things, uh, but it's not in a releasable state, Sean. Um, and whatever sort of performance and whatever story Abel and she were trying to tell about Padre at the beginning, it's completely lost. The film yeah. just keeps interrupting itself with this completely different story, oh. and there's no direct ties between those stories, so it's all over the place. Start. As it has to be one. Uh, Tara, are you are you in the same boat? Uh, no, I'm going to give it a low three. I think it has something to say. It just says it in a really garbled way. <laughs> could could do better. Yes, <laughs> is, I think is the um, is the note there. Three and one for uh, Padre Pio. Let's fi- move on then. Finally, to Baghead. A young woman, estranged from her father, is astonished to discover that she has inherited an old pub on his death. <laughs> it it comes at a price getting this pub. Oh, you're already <laughs> you. That's a very tired nod you just gave me, Tara. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's I don't know. It it feels really silly to complain about you know the bureaucracy that exists within a horror movie. But honestly, this was just this was just ridiculous it sort of has all these kind of rules so you know she's in, so the so the heroine is, has has inherited this pub there's a 400 year old monster in the basement um, the for for some reason the monster is duty bound to listen to whoever has signed the fateful parchment that you know is the deed of the pub so th- this is a rule and the the creature the baghead of the title Played is by. able to is able to um, t- transform into any 
anybody who has recently departed, actually, no, they can have departed many, many years ago, but they, they're able to transform into them for two minutes at a time. They even use a timer for this. And then the two minutes will go up and then nothing really, ha- you're not really sure what's yeah. happening here. It's just a kind of, um, but there's just all these kind of rules for for this monster. And it's it's like, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just baffled. And this all this all works towards um, a, an ending that depends on the rules. And you're just like, going, I'm, I'm lost here. I, just, I, I think I, I need like a solicitor to come in and yeah. to, to, to read, to read, to, to go through the, the fine print on this and figure it all out for me. What did, what did I? sign up to when I decided to go to this movie Yes, Peter Mullen and Ned Dennehy though among the cast there Jeremy Irvine Ruby Baker and Freya Allen completing the, the, the quintet at the centre of it all yeah all on different levels some of them think they're in a pantomime others think they're in a, a, a soapy uh, a melodrama it's it's a ghost train horror and that's fine you know not everything has to make sense but you have to have some sort of internal logic and I sat there the whole time going what happens after two minutes you're not explaining this and it never explains that and it's full of all these weird things like why are they in a pub called the Queen's Head in Germany and and what exactly like what, why is it one all set rules, at night it's, it's, it's so <laughs> peculiar it's so derivative um, there's one great idea here it's based on a short film by Lorcan Riley that idea of a pub landlord who accepts money so that grieving people can you know see their loved ones for a couple of minutes that's a fantastic idea for a short film but this extension just doesn't work it's derivative the jump scares are clumsy the performances are hammy it just doesn't work were there jump scares I they're missed just, they're I so missed weird. those I was I was just I sat there in stony silence <laughs> stillness <laughs> Jump scares and stony stillness will be provided it sounds like stars from you Tara uh, two and, and then you're, it doesn't sound as if you're being delighted to it, it, it has actually good atmosphere for about you know an hour but it doesn't go anywhere and Ned, Ned Dennehy has lots of fun with this kind of creepy lawyer who's a little bit Uriah Heep and also a little yeah. bit Max Shrek so that was fun I had fun with that but that was the end that, was, the, that was the end of the fun okay Chris I'd give it three stars if someone could just explain to me what happens after two minutes <laughs> I really felt as if I'd missed something there but it has to be two I'm afraid alright two from you that is uh, final film this evening Baghead which along with Padre Pio The Colour Purple and all of us strangers uh, all of them on general release from tomorrow Revolution is in the air next Friday as Thomas Bernhard's play The President begins its first preview at the Gate Theatre in Dublin it stars Alwyn Fuere as First Lady and Hugo Weaving in the title role Uh, The couple have just dodged an assassination attempt as the action begins but their bodyguard and their beloved dog have not been so fortunate. I say action. This is a play of much speechifying set in a small unnamed country. The abuse of power, the absurdity of the elite are laid bare in a darkly comic, utterly serious tour de force from uh, Austrian writer Thomas Bernhard. Delighted to have Alwyn Fuere and Tom Creed with me in studio this evening. Thomas Bernhard, I I don't know how familiar will people will be with his writing, but you, Alwyn Fuere, I think were very familiar with it and always wanted to do one of his plays well I always yeah I did well I always wanted to do this one I think but I, I was familiar with his plays mainly less his other writing well, mm. I started to re- read a lot more of his other writing but um, I, I had been handed a copy of this particular play uh, about oh, I don't know when it was like 25 30 years ago and um, was very fascinated by it it was an English translation the translation we're using by it at Gitta Honecker um, and then when I went to France, I saw so many of his plays translated in French on the bookshelves in, in various bookshops. So I read a lot of the plays in French, mm. but very few of them are actually translated into English. What particularly attracted you to this play? You, you play First Lady. And mm. I said that the title character of the president is played by Hugo Weaving. Mm. The, the speaker who or the, the character who speaks most is quite definitely First Lady. You have a lot on your plate here. I sure do. <laughs> I sure do. Uh, we've just been, Yeah, it, it's, it's a huge challenge. I mean, when we started rehearsing it, <clears> you know, because I was familiar with the play, people were thinking, oh, you know it. I said, no, I don't know it. <laughs> and then um, and then, you know, when I started working on it, what was I thinking? thinking not only do I talk all the time but like I'm 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 pretty much immobilized a lot of the time as well so um but there's still a lot of physical work involved in that immobility in some ways it was Tom actually who made the 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 comparison it was a bit like not I or happy days there is a a, that struck me reading the script there's a feeling of Beckett off it Mm. there's a feeling of Pinter off it uh, as well 
But essentially, it's it's misleading. Yes, Alwyn's character, the, the fir- first lady, speaks for the most of the play. Mm. But there's a lot happening all around that. It's It struck me really reading the script. This is one that you need to see. You really need to imagine it up off the page, which is the job of the director, Tom. Yeah, sure. And like, yeah, absolutely. You look at the... Um, you look at the text and it's these kind of extended monologues, you know, which is, I guess, a particular form to Bernhard. Um, he wrote novels and plays and the novels usually take the form of an extended monologue by a narcissistic, uh, paranoid uh, sort of character. Um, and of course, in the novels, the speaker has a direct line to the uh, to the reader because you just have to open the book and you get the, the monologue. Whereas yeah. in the plays, he popu- <coughs> often he populates the plays with other characters who are there listening and they're acting as audiences and mirrors and catalysts um, for uh, for the, the, the central characters. So while um, the vast majority of the speaking is uh, by the First Lady and the President, there are six other actors playing um, even more characters who uh, kind of orbit around them and play officers and ambassadors and um uh, particularly also um, a, a, an actress uh, who is the lover of mm. the president that he escapes to Portugal with and also uh, Mrs. Frolic, the housekeeper, maid, dresser, personal assistant of the president and the first lady, which are almost non-speaking roles but are just as crucial um, mm. to the uh, to the storytelling. I sometimes, you talked about Beckett and I think like obviously, yeah, this sort of Mm. Torrential um, uh, language uh, is uh, certainly, you know, r- reminds us of Beckett. But for me, I, I almost feel, and particularly doing it at the gate, where obviously Beckett is, you know, one of the great pillars of that theatre's repertoire. But Oscar Wilde is another one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there's a sense that um, uh, this is as much a kind of comedy of manners. Uh, as it is a well, kind when you of hear the ter- when you hear the character Mrs. Srolik, you know, you, you kind of think we are yeah. we are in that we are in that world. I also noticed the way it's written on the page, Alvin, and I wondered what what that has led to. It they're, they're very short little lines, like one, two, three words maybe mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. in the line, and then it's written like mm. you know almost in verse, even though it's not rhyming or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. What has that led you to in terms of finding those speech rhythms? Well, um, well, we 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 made certain decisions about you know how what what the repercussions of of how the lines are written um, mm. would would be, um, but they're very the 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 rhythm of the whole piece uh, it has a kind of like machine gun quality, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and and it it certainly helps to to the to this kind of like these, this kind of staccato thinking um so it, it it informs the kind of energy i suppose that drives the the language and the president's speech is written in a different sort of form um it's yeah, slightly more expansive a bit lines, slower yeah. longer lines uh, whereas miss uh, whereas the first lady's speeches are all like mm. Uh, and they're quite, it's quite a febrile kind of energy, um, but it informs the energy that drives the piece, definitely. And, and it's also the rigour of that structure is really, really helpful. Yeah. And, and the other side of this, which we, we should talk about, is that, you know, the society that we're in, obviously, there's just been an assassin, assassination attempt on the on the president, um, the dog and one of his, one of, a colonel uh, who was his bodyguard. They've both been they've both been been killed. And underneath this, we have this sense that there's an, an, an anar- an a, a group of anarchists mm. who are want, who want to pull down this particular ruling class, perhaps not without reason. And it's the generation down from the president and, and the first lady and also Mrs. Frolic. It's their children that are kind of mm. pulling down the society. Yeah, and literally their children. Um, you know, and there's a there's a very real possibility that it's their son actually is mm. the person mm. who's assassinating them and will end up assassinating them, and which of course is like Greek tragedy as well. Yeah. Um but yeah, absolutely. Yes, the anarchists are outside the door. When the play was first performed in Germany in nineteen seventy five, um it op- the German production opened on the day of the Bader Meinhof trial. Mm. So these kinds of, you know, this was, uh, you know, uh, left wing protest had moved on since 1968. Uh, you know, there was a sense that now things had become more more violent. They're blowing up buildings and, you know, killing important people. Um, I think what's kind of, you know, extraordinary and terrifying about working on the play right now, you know, like we're working in the rehearsal room at the Gate Theatre at the moment and we're looking out the window at the place where the riots at the end of November kicked off, yeah. like literally outside the window. And, you know, yeah, just at the top of like, absolutely. Street, yeah. And there's a sense of, you know, 
this um, this regime has been going for almost 40 years and uh, we might be in the very last moments of the regime. Um, this is the regime in the play. Right? Yeah, yes. sure. You know, yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that there's a sense of, um, of yeah, the possibility that, that this might all come crashing down at any moment. And I suppose we've also maybe have, uh, you know, not to give away too much about what will be on stage, but um, we've tried to make... Uh, yeah, something on stage that feels very precarious and could smash easily. Yeah. Um, so the brilliant um, Australian uh, designer Elizabeth Gadsby, who's designed the set and costumes, um, yeah, trying to make something which on, uh, feels on the one hand very luxurious and very mm. kind of monumental, but on the other hand is extremely precarious. And it's also very recognisable. It's very important to us that this is this is recognisably now Maybe here, who knows? Yeah. But but uh, I mean, because as you said, it's so it's so resonant at the moment. The whole the rise of the far right, all of that, you know. So it's very important to us that it, it doesn't become removed as a kind of theatre piece. You know, it's that not it it's not a period piece. It, yeah, it, exactly. It, I suppose totally. Be, Speculative that, present <laughs> is the word that he came fact, up with. I like, totally. I like that. I like that. And I suppose that's why these these plays, when you have an unnamed country, mm. it helps enormously mm. because you can. Uh, any country you want yeah. into that particular situation. However, it is a, a co-production between The Gate and uh, the Sydney uh, Sydney Players, uh, Sydney, Sydney Theatre Theatre Company. Company. Uh, Sydney Theatre Company. What have, what, have, what have the practicalities of that been? Because it's kind of half and half cast and it'll run here and it'll run there. And did it rehearse here and there as well? As yeah. in here in Ireland and there Australia? Well, we rehearsed three weeks in Sydney before Christmas and then we had a, a two to three week uh, uh, break and mm. then we re- resumed the last two weeks of rehearsals here. Um, and the cast is, well, half and half kind of, you know, because yeah. it's Hugo, Australian, Hugo Weaving, yeah. and myself, Irish, and then Kate Gilmore, Irish, and Julie Forsyth, who plays Mrs. Frolic, is Australian. And then the other cast members are local in both cities. Yes, yeah. So that's so how you have it works. The, the quartet kind yeah. of uh, at the head of the group, yeah. if you like, quartet or quintet. Quartet. I can't, I can't work it out. Not too, too not quick enough. Mm. But you have those those leading characters are will move from between yeah, both we'll, places. Yeah, we'll, we'll travel. But you have local yeah. for the smaller yeah. roles. You have yeah. you have locals to to play those. What does that mean? That kind of co- collaboration across continents, across yeah. across hemispheres. In fact, that's it, that's quite a big undertaking, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of it um, is thanks to Colin McCallaghan, um, who's the, the new executive director at The Gate. He's working there with um, the artistic director, Roisin McBrin. But Colin previously worked at Sydney Theatre Company as company manager when Kate Blanchett and her husband, Andrew Upton, um, yeah. ran the theatre and when Alwyn would have gone out and, and performed there and mm. kind of met Hugo for the first time. Um, it's, you know, obviously co-productions are not... Um, new these things happen all the yeah, time yeah. but it's rare actually where it really feels like we're making the show with the two companies um you know often with these co-productions you make the show in one place and then it's like you bring it on mm-hmm. tour to the other place yeah. but so that you know the cast is uh, is mixed like this the um the the design team also is mixed between irish and australian um the costumes have all been made here at the gate most of the props were made in sydney and they'll be kind of transported um, and what what has it what has it given to the performance side of things? I mean, I'm, I'm am I right in thinking, Alwyn, you are using Alwyn, my own voice. We're all using our and own Hugo voices. Weaving, who will be the president, will yeah. be using his own yeah. Australian tilted yeah. voice in in yeah. that respect, as will the other characters mm-hmm. from whatever particular hemisphere they're mm-hmm. from. What does that What does that add in? Does I it, think it gives it a kind of a global mm-hmm. dimension, really. You know that. Um, that yes, we are saying speculative present. It could be anywhere in the world, mm. but 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 and 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 these people are from different parts of the world. So it it helps the fiction and the reality. I think. Yeah, to to, mm-hmm. to have that. Uh, so the run starts here and then goes off down to Australia. So. Uh, how long is this going on for? Tom? I know it's. I mean, it's a. It's a for the actors. It's a long engagement with these mm-hmm. characters. But actually, it's also a great opportunity to to kind of get on top of this kind yeah. of monumental text. So, yeah, mm. so there's, there's a seven-week run at the gate, um, and I think it seems to be selling uh, pretty well, well already, so mm. I think people should jump on tickets. Um, and then there's just a couple of weeks' break um, uh, for the actors and the costumes and the props to be transported to Sydney. Uh, transported maybe is the wrong word. But, um, brought. brought but, uh, <laughs> and then a five-week run at, uh, at, um, in Sydney. But yeah. it's, fa- it's fascinating how the play is 
resonating with things which are going on mm-hmm. in both countries. And know? it will be interesting to see, I suppose, Alvin, the, the different reactions from the, the two different audiences, what, yes. how they will how they will be the same and how they will be different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, uh, well, I remember reading that in the first production, there was a certain point of the play where everybody left. As I was saying, there's points where they might leave, but they're going to stay till they see Hugo. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. The, 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 the prospect of Hugo yeah. leaving, you kind of you really have to stay, uh, yeah. you know, a good bit into it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a kind of amazingly uh, rich, rewarding, hard thing to work on. You know, it's sort mm. of like we're working really yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like we're laughing a lot in the rehearsal yeah, room, yeah, you yeah. know, and I think it's, I think, um, I hope that what we make is something that will be hilarious and terrifying most mm. of the time. That's it. Just yeah. before we head up, the tourist is doing really well it for is. you, Alwyn. Um, yeah. Just uh, the, the the current season. Yeah, yeah. yeah what yeah. what was that experience like? Uh, well, was, I was, had been shot. Where had it? The first season was the shot first season in, was shot in Australia. Australia. Yeah. I know. And in fact, Jamie and Danielle and all they would have all been there at the same time as I was there the last time because yeah. I had to do the hotel quarantine and so did Jamie have to do yeah. hotel quarantine. Well, I didn't know him then with his family and everything. So um, yeah, it's what there's something at foot. Who knows oh, what's yeah. going on? And, it's and, all and being woven. Together by the gods. Yeah, and, uh, and, and then you're shooting this with them, or you have a shot. It's all in the can at this stage. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But it was a great experience. I mean, um, you know, it was, a great, it was a terrific role and just a beautiful company. And the three different directors who worked on it: Fergus O'Brien and uh, Lisa Mulcahy and Kate Dolan. They were all really great to work with, and we had fantastic producers. And it was a very happy, happy shoot. It was extremely hard work, but um, but uh, Jamie and Danielle are both wonderful leaders of the company, and yeah. so they made it very happy and funny. Well, well, there you go. Sounds like it was it was a good experience yeah. and it's continuing on BBC One on Sunday evenings at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and you can watch the whole thing on BBC iPlayer if, uh, you, if, if you, you have fiddle the, with your VPN. And we would never <laughs> encourage such activity, of course. Um, that is Alwyn Ferry and Tom Creed talking to us about how you might watch The Tourist, but also about <laughs> The President by Thomas Bernhard, which previews at the Gate Theatre from the 2nd of February, opens then on the 8th, runs through until the 24th of March, and if you can't get it there you can go down and get it in Sydney for five weeks afterwards if you're lucky enough to be able to do that full details on gittheatre.ie In February 1924 George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue premiered in New York City capturing the exuberant essence of what Gershwin himself called a musical kaleidoscope of America he was 25 years of age at the time sadly passed away um, 13 years later at the age of 38 the music, however, has lived on most recognizable Rhapsody in Blue, undoubtedly one of his most recognisable compositions, or possibly one could say one of the most recognisable compositions of all time. This weekend, to celebrate the centenary of one of his most beloved masterpieces, the RT Concert Orchestra will be playing Gershwin 100 Rhapsody in Blue, an American in Paris, Porky and Bess, all of it happening at the National Concert Hall, and the show is under the trusted baton of principal guest conductor Stephen Bell, who's with me now in, in studio. Just before we get on to the Gershwin, Stephen. Um, they were getting near the two-year mark. Now, I think we spoke when you were kind of starting this. We were kind of work, trying to work out when we last spoke. I think you were starting out as principal guest conductor when we spoke. I don't know where those two years have gone, frankly. I mean, everything's kind of slightly skewed, isn't it, after mm. COVID and, and, and time seems to have sort of stood still a little bit. Um, but yes, it will be two years at the end of this month that I've uh, enjoyed uh, hugely uh, the wide variety of uh, repertoire and genres that the concert was to play. It's yeah, because I mean, even if you look at some of the concerts that you have done and stuff, the stuff that's coming up, I mean, that's what the concert orchestra do better than anybody else. Absolutely. They can go from Beethoven 5 to Rhapsody in Blue to uh, 80s pop music and ABBA. That's know? what that's what keeps it fresh and it keeps you fresh for the players too because no two weeks are ever the same and uh, and, and yeah, they, they can turn on a sixpence. That's what they do best. You know, I was thinking about it today and I thought, you know, if I mentioned the Rite of Spring and Rhapsody in Blue in the same breath, there'd be people say, what are you talking about? It's not as important as that. And I, I accept it's possibly not quite as important a piece as the Rite of Spring. But in terms of American music, I think you could argue that uh, Rhapsody in Blue is a defining moment in that intersection between jazz, folk music of America, if you like, and classical And the classical music. world. It, it was kind of the first of all of those crossover pieces, in a yeah. way. Uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned something like Adorado Spring, which was groundbreaking in yeah. other ways. Gershwin chose to do that and be groundbreaking, but still stay melodic and tonal and... Mm. 
to please his audience. I mean, what a great tunesmith. You've just got to look through the catalogue of songs to know that he writes the most extraordinary melodies. And to be able to kind of encapsulate that with the piano solo and make it sound like it's kind of shoehorning into a classical uh, concerto is a stroke of genius. Yeah, and it is quite definitely, a, it's a piano piece. It's it's very close to being a piano concerto. However, if you ask the clarinetist in the orchestra what's the most important section of Rhapsody Willie, he or she might say, I can tell you what the most frightening part it's of Rhapsody Willie Absolutely. Let's, let's listen to what the clarinet player has to do the minute the piece starts. wanted to give the the clarinet player the heebie-jeebies for the concert in case they don't already have it. The story goes, though, that that's not how Gershwin had originally thought the piece was going to start. Oh, yeah. But it's so kind of... It grabs you. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, you know immediately, as soon as that starts, he's taking you on a journey. A, apparently, the clarinetist at one of the early rehearsals decided to put that sort of little slide in up to the top now, and Gershwin was insistent that it stayed in, because that absolutely grabs your attention and, yeah. and takes you on that journey straight and, away. And, you know, you got to remember, if, if that was a trombone, that'd be great. You know, you just slide up the trombone and you slide up the notes and it works perfectly well. But the, the clarinet, you, you're moving your fingers across keys. So to get that kind of smooth glissando feel, it's an extraordinary technical feat. Um, not I'm easy, not a clarinetist. Yeah. I wouldn't like to uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pronounce on that. But, you're, but you, I, don't want, you don't want to be putting the pressure on the clarinet player. Fair, perfectly, <laughs> perfectly acceptable. However, it is essentially a, a piano piece. And I, I wanted to get, go a little bit into the piece to get a sense of... I think the clarinet, it sets out, this is jazz, mu- jazz music. When the piano comes in and when the melody comes in on the piano, I think you could begin to see that Gershwin is, is playing us and he's letting us know there's more to this piece than than you heard at the very top. So I just wanted to give a, a, a sense, Stephen Abel, uh, who's conducting the RT Concert Orchestra. Fiercre Garvey, I was checking with you, will be the pianist who'll perform yes, yeah. Rhapsody in Blue uh, uh, at the concert. But that does show to me, uh, uh, do you agree, Stephen, this, what Gershwin does here? Because the, there are lots of classical, kind of big romantic, almost Russian type style piano playing asked from the piano player as well. There is, and great versatility. And uh, yeah, Gershwin was obviously a, a hugely talented pianist. But there are moments within the piece where you could almost be kind of sat in a cocktail lounge listening to somebody improvising yeah. and tinkling around <laughs> a piano. Uh, and, and I think that was part of its groundbreaking because he was, he was putting that kind of style into the mould uh, of of a, a classical concerto, but there are whole swathes of the piece which is just solo piano, yeah, um, and obviously quite, put, quite put, put together beautifully crafted and and gorgeous music to kind of sit and sit and listen to. Yeah, I said to you that the concert will uh, include music from Porgy and Bess. What are we getting there? Well, the Porgy and Bess is really exciting. It's actually a piece that we premiered with the RTE Concert Orchestra back in 2019, and. Although the melodies you hear in Porgy and Bess are, are still the ones from, from the folk opera that Gershwin wrote, uh, the recording that Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong made in the late 50s, I think it was recorded in 57, released in 58, uh, by Russell Garcia, who'd, who'd assembled a, a stellar cast um, 
to accompany uh, Ella and Louie on this on this particular album, but the the parts were were never discovered. They were never found after the recording. So Ryan Quigley, uh, who is an award-winning trumpet player himself, has taken the audio and kind of done a transcription of it. He contacted Russell Garcia and asked, you know, have you still got the parts? And he said, no, they were they were lost or whatever happened to them, I don't know, but you have my blessing to kind of do a, a transcription of this. Yeah. So painstakingly, Ryan's put the whole album together um, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's terrific. We've got Enrico Tommaso coming to play the part of uh, Louis Armstrong uh, and a wonderful young jazz singer uh, called Nicola Emmanuel singing singing Ella's roles. Um, and it's joyous, absolutely joyous music. And, and the concert starts off with an American in Paris, which is again, I suppose, Gershwin laying out his his European and American credentials. It in is, some ways, and, isn't it? And, and to me, that shows his great skill yeah. as an orchestrator. It's like watching something in ultra HD. It's just vivid colours from the, he, the the orchestration. That's people always talk about that. In, in terms of Gershwin that there are other piano concertos that they might argue aren't the best concertos in the world but the orchestration, the orchestration nobody, is, is nobody, nobody argues perfect. that yeah. uh, just going back briefly to the last two years what stands out for you I mean I know there have been so many big moments oh, what gosh. really stands out for you in terms of the work with the it's, the, it's the variety of stuff actually because you know we've done big sort of film concerts we've done movies and musical shows uh, I particularly enjoyed when we did the, the Thin Lizzy orchestrated because that was something completely new yeah. and different uh, with, a, with a great lineup. Singers. Well, again, it's the back to that versatility of the RT concert orchestra. Absolutely. That they can do Thin Lizzy and they can do Gershwin and they can do everything else in between. Absolutely. And that's part of the joy of it. And of course, Zoe Conway's just come on board as an associate artist and we did her new film From a Forest to a Fiddle back in, in mm. November. And again, a completely new. Uh, new audience for that so yeah it's it's it's, it's like you say it's the variety yeah, and, and I want to finish up with a little bit of Gershwin I'm going to Gershwin the final words tonight but let me tell people that uh, Stephen Bell principal guest conductor of the RTE Concert Orchestra those concerts uh, Gershwin 100 National Concert Hall this Saturday sadly sold out there's a Valentine's special Respect February the 14th and uh, that's in the National Opera House as well and finally the big 80s night out is on Friday the 5th of April in the National Concert Hall and then in Setu in Arena the Waterford in Arena in Waterford on Saturday the 6th and um, the other two concerts adding on to the Gershon who's going to get almost the last words tonight here you go George <laughs>